Welcome back to our study on biblical eldership. My name is Corey Williams, so glad to have you on board. In this session, we're going to be looking at the qualification of elders. We're going to be looking at the list of the qualifications that's offered to us. And actually, the list shows up in two places. It shows up in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and then also in Titus chapter 1. Now, we in a previous session, we looked at Titus 1. So today, we'll mainly look at the First Timothy passage, and then I'll draw in a couple insights from, from Titus as well. So let's go ahead and read the text, pray, and then we'll get to work. First Timothy 3, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone, who does, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders, so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Let's pray. Lord, as we <clears throat> look at your perfect word, I pray that you would speak to each of us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the character and the quality of elders that's, that's required by you, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would populate your churches with these kinds of leaders. For your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> I think it's appropriate in this session to lay down some definitions, to really clarify what it is that we're talking about. Um, when we talk about overseers, or when we talk about elders, or when we talk about pastors, who exactly are we talking about? Well, the New Testament actually uses those terms synonymously. In fact, in 1 Timothy, it says, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task, now the overseer is to be, and then it lists out all the requirements. But if you remember in Titus, it tells us that an elder must be blameless. He, he says, Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might appoint elders. An elder is to be, and then he outlines the list of requirements there. And <clears throat> the majority of the list is actually identical. So, so you know, if, if we're talking about two different groups, there's a, a tremendous similarity between what's required of them. But as you begin to kind of look at what the New Testament actually says about overseers and about um, elders and even about shepherds or pastors, you'll notice pretty quickly that it, it's using all three of those different terms um, to speak about one office. And that's how I read it and that's what I see here and it's uh, fascinating to me that most commentators agree with that uh, reality, that those are three different designations speaking of just one office, the office of elder slash overseer slash pastor. Now, 
let me show it to you from 1 Peter chapter 5, just so that you see that I'm not making this stuff up. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter's writing and he puts it like this, to the elders among you, okay? So there's our first term, elders. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Then he says, verse 2, be shepherds. There it is, the second designation. And this, this one has to do with uh, that pastoral metaphor that leaders are to be shepherds. They're to pastor people. Um, the English word pastor, that's what that is getting at. It's getting at that metaphor of shepherding. Uh, a shepherd leading a flock, caring for a flock, looking after a flock. So he says in verse 2, verse 1, to the elders among you, verse 2, be shepherds. So again, it's that interplay of two different designations, but it's talking about that one group. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care. And then here comes the third term, watching over them. The same word that is translated as overseer. Here it's being used to say, this is what your job is. It's your functional title. Watch over them. Not because you must, but because you're willing as God wants you to be. So in two verses in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, we see all three of these terms show up and they're speaking to one particular group. So as we look at this list of qualifications and we're thinking, okay, what does core mean when he uses the word elder? What does core mean when he's saying an overseer or a shepherd? Um, we're talking about this one office given in the New Testament of spiritual leaders in local churches. Okay, so that's why we're doing this elder development plan. We are trying to help people move toward or understand what it is that they're being appointed to. We're trying to help people move toward this uh, biblical foundation of what this calling actually is. Well, <clears throat> before we jump into the actual qualifications, let me just point out that 1 Timothy 3 reminds us that the office of elder or overseer or uh, even the old older translation of bishop or pastor, <clears throat> that calling is a high calling, okay? Look at verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. It says, here is a trustworthy saying, okay? So this was kind of something that could be spoken of in the first century. This was something that within the churches, they, they kind of had a, a saying about this thing. And so Paul is kind of nodding to that and he's saying, look, here's a trustworthy saying. This should be common knowledge <clears throat> in the local church. Here's a trustworthy saying. And he says, here's what it is. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. So a couple things there. One, the aspiration to the role is appropriate. If somebody's aspiring to that office of overseer, that's a good thing. Obviously, uh, the motivations can get distorted and it can be unhealthy and people can pursue leadership for all kinds of wrong reasons. But we, we want to be able to say the aspiration to the office of elder is actually a good thing. We don't want to discourage that. We want to encourage people to pursue eldership for God's glory. Now, obviously, not just anybody can do that. The requirements here will spell out the kind of people who should be appointed, and therefore it restricts appointment to people who do not match up to that uh, list here. Um, <clears throat> but it is a, it, it, the desire for it or the aspiration for it is a good thing. Second thing that we find out, though, is that the 
task itself is a noble task. That eldership is a beautiful reality. Pastoring is a beautiful reality. And we need to recapture this vision because uh, in society today, um, surveys actually indicate that the office of pastor used to be looked upon favorably in society. And I'm talking about in American West, uh, you know, the American culture as it is today. It used to be that a person who was a pastor would be looked on favorably. That there would be some credibility to the fact that uh, if you met a pastor, you you would assume that they would be an ethical individual. You would assume that they would have some spiritual insights. You would you would assume that they would be uh, operating for the good of culture and society. But studies have began to indicate that now the office of of pastor is no longer a respectable position. It's actually a questionable questionable position. A lot of people look on pastors with a skepticism about whether or not they're any good. So, man, we want to be the kind of church and we want to have the kind of message and branding that says the office of elder, the role of being an overseer in a local church, the call to shepherd the people of God, the call to be a pastor is a beautiful thing. It is a significant and noble thing. And we need to uh, build that back out, certainly in our our own hearts. And uh, hopefully, Lord willing, we can recapture the respect of the wider society. That's the task that we have ahead of us. Well, let's spend our time then looking at the list of qualifications so that we would understand the kind of, excuse me, the kind of people who should be appointed to this position. Okay, so 1 Timothy chapter 3, now we're in verse 2. It says, now the overseer is to be, be above reproach. Or if you're looking at it in the Titus passage, it reads like this, an elder must be blameless. So right out of the gate, it puts this incredibly high bar out there. The overseer is to be above reproach or is to be blameless. Now, commentators have noted that this is kind of a summarizing idea, that this is kind of on the front end of the list, but really it's kind of a introduction to the whole concept of being the kind of person, and then it will tease out exactly what that looks like. But uh, the early church father Chrysostom, he said, every virtue is implied in this one word. So at the heading of the list, being above reproach, that's a that's an all-encompassing reality. That's saying this is the the elder, the overseer, the pastor needs to be the kind of person who has a life of virtue. Now, <clears throat> one of the things to note as you look at this verse here is that <clears throat> elders either are this or they aren't. So it says that they must be blameless in Titus 1, 6, or is to be above reproach as saying the kind of person that you should appoint is this. I've heard it said, and I think it's wise and right, that you should not appoint somebody to to eldership who is not already functioning like an elder. You look at people and you're trying to discern that the Holy Spirit has qualified them for the task. And then it's on the church to be very careful not to look at somebody and say, you know what? They're close. 
They don't, they don't line up with the list exactly. There's some deficiencies here. I've got some concerns here, but they're pretty close. So why don't we go ahead and appoint them to the task and maybe their responsibility will encourage them and motivate them and get them rest, the rest of the way. No, no, no. This says that the elder must be above reproach. The overseer is to be above reproach. So we need to look at people and say, until you match up to this, you're not qualified yet to be an elder. Now, certainly, as I mentioned in a previous session, we want to use the list of requirements really as a discipleship agenda. And so we, we do want to move people in this direction. We want to use it as kind of the criteria for evaluating people, but certainly also as a way to say, here's some things that we're aiming at. Here's the goal. Here's the destination. But until they match up to those requirements, we do not want to appoint people to the position. So above reproach, what does that look like? Well, let's tease it out now by looking at each of the specifics. Uh, first off, you've got this one woman man. Uh, it says in 1 Timothy 3, 2, the person, the potential elder, the elder has to be faithful to his wife. Um, now, throughout the history of the church, this has been translated in a variety of different ways. Um, but uh, some have taken it to mean you must be married. If you want to be an elder, you must be married. So they're, they're underlining to his wife. Um, and so they're saying, like, look, if you're going to be an elder, you have to be married. We don't want single individuals in this office, there are perils that are associated with ministry and sexual fidelity. And so faithful to his wife, you got to be married. Others have interpreted it as the, the need to be um, not a polygamist, not married to a bunch of people. There are different cultures where that would be uh, acceptable in their society. And it's saying, no, you need to be faithful to your wife. The translation that I'm most comfortable with and that I think gets it right is Bill Mounce's translation where he says, the elder must be a one woman man. There's a principle here. It's not uh, saying you have to be married or you have to avoid polygamy, but there's a principle here and it has to do with sexual fidelity. The elder has to be the kind of person who has sexual integrity. So if they're married, they have to be faithful to their wife. But if they're single, which I think is a live option when you look at um, the rest of the New Testament teaching. If they're single, then that person has to maintain sexual integrity, meaning the way that they would relate to uh, members of the opposite sex would be very careful, very intentional, very strategic, because the elder needs to be a person who is above reproach and certainly in the realm of sexual ethics. So when we think about elders, we're looking for individuals who are one, let me say it like this so I don't mess up the, you know, turning it into plural and confusing people. I don't want to say one women men, uh, but the elder has to be a one woman man. Uh, it has to be somebody who has sexual integrity. Uh, additionally, an elder has to be consistent or level-headed. Look at the next batch of terms here. It says they have to be temperate, and then it goes on to say self-controlled, and I think those are a pair. They have to be temperate and self-controlled. Temperate, as uh, some commentators have noted, it's this idea of being sober-minded, being uh, level-headed, 
being clear headed, not faddish, not all over the place, not, you know, having ideas one day and racing after them and then changing and turning around completely and going after something new. No, elders have to be temperate and self-controlled. So, I mean, as you think about the last 18 months at the time of this recording, having gone through so many different things in our society and in our world, actually, um, it's very important that an elder would be temperate so that they're not having these high highs and these low lows, like one day saying, oh, the, the sky is falling. This is the worst thing that's ever happened. And then, oh, look at revivals on the horizon and God's doing all these different things. No, an elder should, should be somebody who's temperate and self-controlled, meaning they're sober-minded. When somebody's following them, they don't feel like they're getting whiplash because the leader one day is saying, here's the, the latest and greatest thing. And then the next day has changed his mind about that and is pursuing something else. Or using, um, uh, what's the, I can't think of the term exactly, but, but using uh, exaggeration in their language and saying, look, here's what we need to be doing. And if you're not doing this, then I don't understand. Are you really even a, you know, are you really even faithful? You know, sometimes we can be lacking in this sober mindedness when we get drunk on our ideas and we begin to say, everybody should be engaged in ministry like this. No, that's not very clear headed. That's not very sober minded. That's a little bit extreme in the ideas. We need leaders who are who are consistent leaders who are able to say, here's what God has called us to. And here's what we're discerning that he's leading us toward. And with sober-mindedness, we're going to pursue this. Now, there will be other great ideas that come along, and we might make some revisions along the way. But at the end of the day, you can trust a good elder to be consistent in the way that they handle this call to leadership. They are temperate and self-controlled. Additionally, they need to be a respected person. Uh, It tells us here that the elder must be respectable, Um, But the idea is simply that when you look at a a potential elder or somebody that has been appointed to eldership, what you ought to be able to find is that this person has a respectable disposition, meaning that if somebody were to spend time with them, the general vibe that they would get is, I like this person. I respect them. I, I admire the way that they carry themselves and the way that they make decisions and I simply respect them. Um, That's the kind of person that we want in the role of elders. And so as you think through uh, living examples of this, you you want people who the the conversation about them actually precedes them. Meaning people who have dealt with them, if you bring up their name and somebody goes, oh, I know that person, you, you want for that description to be favorable. Like I, I've done business with them, I've interacted with them, and I respect them. Even if I disagree with them, you want people to, to respect those who are appointed to eldership. Additionally, an elder must be a people person, meaning it's very important that elders would be the kind of uh, individuals who actually love people. Um, it tells us here that an elder must be hospitable. Hospitality. What, what, what is hospitality? Well, simply when you are introduced to a new individual, hospitality means I treat them with dignity and respect and I work at making them feel 
welcomed and making them feel as though they belong, hospitality. And so it's a, a good benchmark for an elder to be able to say, dude, you need to actually like people. You're not just, you know, building a ministry. You're not just preaching sermons. You're not just creating programs. You're not just serving the community. When a flesh and blood person lands in front of you, you actually care about them. You practice hospitality. You look at that person and you think, I want to know this person's name. I want to know this person's story. I want to care for them specifically. Elders have to be people persons. They have to be people who actually think more about the individuals than about the task. And in ministry, at least in my experience, it's all too easy to make it about the task and to see people as a means to an end. Well, the elder must be hospitable. Additionally, the elder has to have an aptitude to teach. An elder must be able to teach. Now, this doesn't mean that every elder needs to have an equal giftedness in preaching and teaching. Uh, the expectation is not that everyone who's on an elder team will um, have the same exact role because we acknowledge that God gives different gifts and in different proportions. But every elder needs the ability to teach. My dad tells a story about when he was helping a... Uh, he was on an elder team at a smaller church when I was a young boy. And they were doing a pastoral search committee. So they were trying to find the next pastor. They would bring different people in. And um, one of the pastor's uh, potential candidates to be the next pastor said, what I hope the elder team will be able to do is everybody on the team will preach at church. They'll, if I have to go on vacation or if I need a sabbatical or if I just need a week off, then one of the members of the elder board uh, could jump in and preach and teach that week. And one of the elders, one of the sitting elders at that point basically said, this is not our guy. <laughs> because he was fearful of the prospect of having to get in front of the church and preach. Okay, see, when it says able to teach, it's not saying everybody is expected to have the same level of responsibility for teaching. No, it's saying elders need this aptitude to teach, showing up in whatever channels of communication are appropriate to them. So certainly within their home, as we'll see here in a moment, they're teaching their family the things of God. If they're leading a, a small group, they're able to teach that small group the doctrines of faith. If they're doing life-on-life -life discipleship with a single individual, there should be an aptitude there to teach. Whatever the appropriate channels are for that individual, given their gift mix and their calling, they simply need to be able to display an aptitude to teach. Additionally, elders should not be given to drunkenness. Verse 3, not given to drunkenness. And so there needs to be this, uh, the idea here is the idea of sobriety. Um, uh, it kind of harkens back to some of the Old Testament texts where it's saying of kings and priests that they need to be sober so that they could perform their responsibilities. And an elder needs to be somebody who's careful with um, substances. And I don't think that this is necessarily promoting, uh, you know, the, the total abstinence of, of drinking. Uh, St. Augustine said, perfect moderation is much harder um, than total abstinence. And I think that elders need to be the kind of people who deal with 
um, substances with, with incredible care, not just, not just um, alcohol, but I would say any addictive behaviors. Um, an elder needs to be the kind of person who is not given over to addictive behaviors by the grace of God. Additionally, an elder should not be contentious. It reads like this, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome. An elder needs to be the kind of person who is, um, as one commentator put it, there's a sweet reasonableness about them. There's a way that they deal with even contentious subjects, but they're doing it with this gentleness. They don't enjoy a, a good fight. They're not contentious in the sense that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to fight over these different things. I'm going to help people to see my point of view. No, no, no. An elder has a sweet reasonableness about them. In fact, they could be a calming presence in the midst of a conflict. An elder can step in with sweet reasonableness and be able to talk people off the ledge and say, okay, well, let's look at this in a very sane way. Let's not get all heated about stuff. Let's not exaggerate about stuff. Let's not speak in catastrophic language. Let's tone this down and let's be careful to love each other well and to be gentle with each other and not quarrelsome. So this is a very important feature for the elders because often elders will be discussing all kinds of different ideas. And we need to be able to come together and share differing viewpoints and share different ideas and different strategies. And we don't want to be, you know, grabbing each other by the collar and saying, you better get on my side. No, no, no. Elders need to be gentle and not quarrelsome, not contentious. We need to be the kind of people who are reasonable. And I think that you would understand that this could go a very, very long way. Elder boards that are contentious create toxic environments and uh, churches that ultimately um, bite and devour each other. And so we want to be the kind of church that is gentle and not quarrelsome. Additionally, elders need to be content in regard to money. Um, it says here, not a lover of money. And this is a very uh, surprising feature, but as I've looked at the New Testament, and this has probably uh, come on my radar, radar more in recent years, I see a connection between the love of money and false teaching. And it's here in all the pastorals and, and all these letters that are written to Timothy and Titus, but it's all over in the New Testament. There is a connection between uh, a love for money and a desire to pursue false teaching. So an elder needs to be careful in regard to finances, content in regard to money, <clears throat> not a lover of money. Now, obviously, uh, the New Testament makes provisions for pastors to be paid, and it even says that uh, pastors should be paid well, that they're worthy of double honor if they're doing their job well and if they're committed to certain things. But it's telling us here that elders need to be careful with their relationship to money, not desiring too much of it, uh, but simply being content with what God provides for them. Now, the church, I think, has an obligation to, um, to, to do a good job on this. And so it goes both ways, but here we're looking at elders. So let's just say elders need to be content in regard to money. All right, additionally... Uh, elders need to be able to manage, and that's that functional title of overseer. And so if you're an overseer, your job is to manage the household of God. So here it tells us the ability to manage is going to show up um, 
not simply in your place of employment, but your ability to manage will show up in your home life. And so it gives us a new environment to, to evaluate. Uh, it tells us here <clears throat> in verses four and five, the potential elder must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? So it's saying, look, if you want to understand whether or not a person is capable to oversee God's household, look at this individual's own household and see if you can discern healthy leadership there. And healthy leadership uh, would show up in the people who are under his care and guidance and direction. So children would respect him, would obey him. He would lead them in a manner worthy of full respect. And his wife as well uh, should be somebody who is thriving. Um, so we can look at the home environment and we can learn an awful lot about a potential elder. We can, we can look at that and go, are the people under his care growing in Christ-likeness? Are the people under his care thriving? And does he love that calling? Because, you know, I think a good overseer is somebody who's going to uh, really enjoy the responsibility laid on them. I think it's possible and it's uh, unfortunate, really, but you can look at some individuals and you can see right away, they don't love this calling. I mean, maybe that would be an overstatement, but you can discern by their patterns that maybe they, they prefer not to... Um, you know, they, their hobbies draw them elsewhere. They're not always totally engaged in the home life. They don't, they're not always like, oh, man, I can't wait to be with my wife and children. I just want to be away from that and doing the stuff that I love. Well, I think that's a good indication of where an individual's heart is at. I think if somebody is called to oversight, it's going to also show up in the way that they're leading their own family. So an elder must be able to manage, and that will show up in the management of his own family. Next, you've got this idea that the elder should not be new to the faith. It says in verse 6, he must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Elders should not be somebody who just became a believer because then you're going to give them so much authority and they're going to become prideful in it. They're going to become conceited. <clears throat> I, um, For whatever reason, God has given me a ministry to... Uh, Bible college graduates and Bible college students, they go off to college and they're studying the word and they get, uh, they get very passionate about the things that they're learning there. And unfortunately, there's a little corollary there between learning the Bible and becoming incredibly spiritually arrogant. And so you got to be careful that you don't take some young person who's growing in their love for the word and give them a platform that's actually going to foster uh, spiritual unhealth because it's going to lead to their conceit and they will fall under the same judgment as that of the devil. You want somebody who's been battle tested, who's gone through that season of growing in their love for God and their passion for the word, but they've come through that now and they actually still like people. And they're not judgmental and condemning and self-righteous, but they're sweet and tender and humble. And unfortunately, some people never do arrive at that place. But the kind of people we want as elders certainly have to be this. 
They have to be mature. They have to be humble. Uh, they have to be careful not to be conceited in the way that they deal with God and his scriptures, puffing themselves up and therefore falling under the same judgment as the devil. John Stott, <clears throat> he, he says this, he says, doubtless pastors were first called elders because that's what they were, senior in age and mature in faith. Those are the kind of individuals that we would want to appoint to eldership. Those who are senior in age and mature in faith. And obviously there, there's a context to consider. Uh, as new churches are started, you have to look at what's actually there and how, you know, you're, it's, you know, you're dependent upon what you have within the congregation. Um, but you don't want to appoint somebody who is new to the faith because that could be damning for them. Finally, an elder must have a good reputation. Verse 7, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Um, you want elders who are able to carry themselves in a way that is commendable in the greater society, having a good reputation so that they, they would not bring disrepute on the church of Jesus Christ. You want elders who in their neighborhood are known for being good people, um, you don't want to give the devil ammunition to try to bring harm on the church and its leaders. So the elder must have a good reputation with outsiders so as not to fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. That's the conclusion of the list there in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, additionally, in Titus, if you recall, there's a need for elders to have a firm grasp of the teaching, the sound teaching and the ability to use that grasp of doctrine to be helpful and to promote the good and the maturity and the um, Christ-likeness of the people under their care. Uh, but having a list like this is a good place for us to evaluate our, our hearts and our, um, our readiness to be an elder. So let's now <clears throat> just apply this by asking uh, the question of why is this here? Why is it that the New Testament gives us a list of character qualifications and not, not a, a proof text on what the elders do when they meet? Why is it that the New Testament gives us a list of requirements and it has everything to do with character and very little to do with a skill set? Why is it like this? Okay, that's the question that we need to wrestle with a little bit as we come to a close. Why is it that the New Testament presents the call to eldership in this way? Well, let me give you three different ideas as we wrap up. First, one of the reasons why it is presented this way is to deal with the problem of false teaching. Bill Mounts uh, has taught on the pastoral letters, has written on them in a commentary, um, has you know, been studying it for his lifetime. And he points out this, uh, I think is very insightful. He points out that the list of qualifications seems to deal with the context of the false teaching that was going on in these different communities of faith. In Crete and uh, the, where Timothy was doing ministry, there were false teachers. And what Paul was promoting was the kind of individuals who were who are opposite to them, okay? So if false teachers are like this, 
here's the kind of teacher that you would want, the kind of elder that you would want leading the charge. And so there's this, as you kind of zoom back in the in these letters and you look at the issues that they were facing, you can begin to see this, um, this idea of elders are the living example of everything that false teachers are not. So let me show it to you uh, in the text, okay? False teachers, they had a message that resulted in speculations and senseless babble. Um, false teachers loved to uh, teach these mystical ideas and these kind of like hidden meanings. And they love to kind of uh, provoke people to think outside of the box. Um, whereas elders need to be the kind of people who hold firmly to the message as it was taught and they use it wisely, resulting in um, understanding, resulting in clarity. Uh, false teachers love to play the devil's advocate. There are mysteries that we don't know about the things of God. Let's talk about that. Let's debate that. Let's enjoy the fact that we can have a good debate. And remember, the list tells us elders are not to be quarrelsome. We're not to enjoy that sort of thing where we're just batting ideas around and we're, we're kind of leading people into the unknown and the murky and the, uh, the areas where they can get in trouble. And I think we've seen this play out um, in, in, in various places in... Uh, the church. We've seen people who fall in love with controversial ideas and really just the idea of, you know, controversy and just putting out theological ideas that are like, well, what do you think about this? And it leads people into trouble and into harm and it creates an environment where people can't thrive because they don't know what truth is. Well, further, their teaching resulted in foolishness and strife and quarrels. Not only was it speculative, but it was also combative. It resulted in people having these foolish ideas, and they would be in conflict. We see that in Titus 3.9. And so elders are the kind of people who are not that. They're not contentious. They're not presenting ideas that result in strife and quarrels. Furthermore, false teachers promoted a message that resulted in ungodliness, 2 Timothy 2.16. So good teachers, elders, are leading people to a way of Christ-likeness, to godliness. They themselves are called to that. We saw that in Titus chapter 1, that part of the expectation was that elders would be godly um, and, and pursuing godliness. And therefore, their teaching would have a similar feel to it. It would result in people growing in their Christ-likeness. Well, false teachers have the opposite effect. They're, what they're doing is resulting in ungodliness, envy, strife, slander, evil suspicions, and constant irritation. Okay, that is not what you want. You don't want a teacher who is producing that kind of fruit. But that's the fruit of the false teachers as described in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. Furthermore, elders are to hold to a trustworthy message and encourage others by it. False teachers, on the other hand, they are promoting doctrine that, um, that leads to bickering and fighting over words and ultimately to ruin and harmful. Uh, it's even described as harmful and useless. That's 2 Timothy 2, verse 14, and Titus 3, 9. So 
Elders are the kind of people who are leading and teaching in a way that is resulting in spiritual maturity and godliness. And that's what you want. You want elders who are doing that. And uh, as John Stott indicates in, in his commentary, one of the purposes of multiplying elders is to deal with the problem of false teaching. Obviously, it calls us to silence false teachers and to rebuke them and, and uh, various other things in the letters. But the primary way given in the pastorals to deal with false teaching and its effects is act actually to multiply the tribe of true teachers, to grow up a, a, a group of individuals, of, of elders who are able to teach and to teach the sound message of the gospel. All right, second, another reason why um, the list here is presented in the way that it is is because um, elder, elders are to model the goal. So not only are they supposed to teach in a way contrary to the false teachers, elders are supposed to be the living example of the intended destination for the entire church. I love how um, <clears throat> D.A. Carson puts it. He says, the, the elder requirements is actually remarkable for this reason. It's unremarkable. In other words, he's saying everything that's expected of the elders is not that extreme. It's actually just kind of ordinary Christianity. It's, it's saying that, you know, the stuff that you expect any believer to be, certainly the elder must be that as well, and in a way that is exemplary. And so elders are the model. They are the living example of Christ-likeness. And they need to be able to be the kind of people then who are able to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So that makes the discipleship agenda come to life. It's, it's able to say, look at these individuals who are living out their faith and be like them as they seek to be like Christ. All right, finally, elders are, are called to be these things in order to build a gospel culture. The church needs to be the place where sinners and saints come alive in the presence of the Lord himself, to borrow Ray Ortland's slogan. Uh, a gospel culture. If you look at the list, notice that almost everything is a relational designation. Almost every, every part of the qualification list actually shows up in relationships in the way that we deal with other people. And so we need to have a culture where um, people can come into a church, into a fellowship, and they can find a place where it feels like Christ is there and is ministering to them. And there's this relational beauty and this place where people can come in and experience the grace of God. I think that the elders are called to be these things because the church is supposed to be the place where people can experience the risen Christ through real followers of his. Well, um, I hope that that makes sense to you. But elders then, as we've looked at this list, elders are those who have been captured by the grace of God and are called to serve the church of God in both love and appreciation for Christ. They are they are above reproach. They are mature in their, in their experience of Christ, and they then become the living example. Let me just say one more thing in closing. Uh, this also points to the fact that a lot of the task of, of eldering will actually show up with 
the informalities of being who they are. In other words, the list doesn't tell us, here's everything that the elder needs to do. We'll, we'll dive into that in upcoming sessions. But the list reminds us that most of the influence is going to happen on account of their informal power. Formal power is where you have a title, a designation, and everyone has to follow your lead because you have authority. Well, certainly elders have a little bit of that as they are appointed to an office in the church. But if it's all about their character, then the main way that they're going to exert influence is through just being themselves, or better put, being Christ-like in uh, the context of the calling that God has given to them. So elders are those who have experienced the grace of God. They're the living example in the church of being Christ-like, and they are teaching and promoting every, they're teaching and promoting that everyone should be pursuing this way of Christ. And so let's go ahead and pray, and we'll wrap up our time together today. Lord, we pray that you would multiply the tribe of elders, that churches would be populated with well-qualified uh, well leaders who can help churches grow in their experience of you. So we ask that this teaching and that our church would move in that direction. In Jesus' name, amen.